Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John is joined by Zam Awesh, who talks about his work restoring Iraq's wetlands. Then, John, Natasha, and I explore the relationship between climate change, governance, and trust. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Azam Alwash is the founder of Nature Iraq. He is a Goldman Prize laureate for his environmental work, and he is one of the founders of the American University in Sulaymaniyah. Azam Alwash, welcome to Babel. Thank you. As it happens, my family is from Babylon, so it's a homecoming of a sort. <laughs> you left Iraq when you were a young man. You lived in the United States. You got educated here. You worked here, and then you went back to Iraq after Saddam Hussein fell to restore the marshes. Why was that? Yes, as you say, I had achieved the American dream. And I was a kayaker. We used to go kayaking around wetlands in Southern California. And memories of my wetlands just haunted me. So when I heard that the marshes were dry, that was a devastating blow. So in 2003, I went back naively thinking that this is going to be a one, two, three year project, not realizing it's a multi-decadal endeavor. I did not intend to stay in Iraq. I intended to just go work on the restoration of the marshes and then come back home, home being California. And here we are, 17, 18 years later, 17 years. I'm still at it. And I suspect I'm going to be at it till the day I die. This is not an easy project. The economy and the environment of Iraq have been interlinked in a very bad way. The oil producing reservoirs, five giant reservoirs, are underneath the marshes. So we're going to be at it. I don't want to sound regretful, John. It has been one of the most interesting and challenging things that I have ever done. Yes, it has come at a personal price, being away from from my children as they grew and I'm hoping that one day they come back and and see it and see some of the results of their dad's work and and recognize that it was all for a good cause. Why is it so hard? For that, I need to explain to your uh, listeners uh, what the marshes are. The marshes are essentially nature's way of containing floods. The marshes are completely dependent on the flood pulse of the Tigris and Euphrates. In fact, the Sumerians celebrated the floods by celebrating the goddess of fertility, Ishtar. You see 60% of the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates come down in the snowmelt in the spring. And that's an incredible amount of water. And all of it cannot get to the Gulf. You have a small little hose called Shat al-Arab that takes the water away to the Gulf. And essentially, the marshes become the container, the bladder, if you will, of all this water coming down. So the flood is part and parcel. It's the natural beat upon which the symphony of biodiversity of the southern Iraq has been playing since the last ice age. And the pulse is no longer. The dams upstream have made that pulse a flat line. And so what we have, when people say the marshes have been restored, I say they have not been restored. They have been reflooded. But the beautiful thing about nature, John, is that she's adaptable. She adapts. 
All we need to do is let the water and get out of the way and she will adapt to the new conditions. So what's happening right now, the marshes visually look similar to what I remember from my childhood. Forests of reeds, water till the, eye, till the eye can see, birds in the sky. But when you look closely, the kind of fish that the fishermen are fishing is different than what it was when I was young. It's much smaller, of course, but even the species are different. And so what's happening is that nature is adapting slowly. The species that are dependent on clear water, that are dependent on the pulse of this flood, are no longer thriving. What is thriving in their stead are species that don't mind having that brackish water, that slow water, that monotonous flow of water. Previously, the flood comes in, it covers the land, it widens the lateral extent of the marshes, it, it increases the depth of the water, and that was actually in time with the fish spawning, with the birds migrating. So let me ask you a question about adaptation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had a, a neighbor whose father was from Iraq, and mm. she grew up always thinking my dad is really foreign. And then she went to the Arab world for the first time. She was living in Beirut, and she saw her dad in an Arab context and said, wow, my dad is really American. He doesn't fit into the Arab world. You came back to the Arab world. You came back to an Iraq that was very different from the Iraq you left. How did people treat you as an expatriate coming back in the wake of Saddam Hussein, changed by your experience and wanting to in some ways change Iraq, in some ways to something people remembered, in some ways to things they never remembered? Yes, you're right, John. I am no longer an Iraqi. I'm an American of Iraqi heritage. And I take that with a sense of pride. I, I'm not ashamed of my Americanness. But I am proud also of my Iraqi heritage. I do not hide it. I didn't change my name. Azam Alwish is still my name. Now, dealing with Iraqis, over the last 17 years, it's been an interesting trip. Initially, we were viewed by Iraqis of the, the inner Iraqis, the Iraqis that stayed and suffered the, the sanctions, were viewed as curiosities. I recall initially when I first went to the marshes, people could guess that I am from the outside just by the color of the whites of my eyes. Do you understand how silly that is? And, and then of course, and of course, I remember one time telling a fisherman who was using electricity to, to fish and killing the small little fingerlings. Said, this is haram, this is not kosher. You know, you're killing, you're killing future fish. He looks at me and says, you must be from the outside. And I say, yes, but how do you know? He said, well, I'll ask you this. What do you feed your children? when you have nothing. That made me shut up. That was early on. That was, that was summer of 2003. It was a lesson to me not to, not to act like a know-it-all, to listen. And the marsh people, the, the fishermen, the, the, the birdsmen, the people who weave mats, they are my better teachers. They actually know the marsh a lot better than I do. I'm an engineer, what do I know? I know water flows, I don't know how it goes, I'm not shy about telling you, I do have a change of clothes that I stay, that I keep in Iraq, purchased locally, so that I don't, I don't stand out. It is now dangerous to go in the South and tell people that I'm an American because, in fact, they see, they see a hostage, they see money, they see all sorts of things. So it's been interesting. Nevertheless, I can tell you and I can tell your audience that Iraqis in general still love America. And they understand the difference between America and American policy. And in fact, having had suffered 
through the last, oh, 10 years of thuggery by some of the militias. They're dead and tired of, of uh, those militias. And we'll see how, how life progresses. We're doing a project that has to do with sustainable services, water, electricity, waste, and the way in which it's integrated with broader governance issues in the region, which is why I wanted to, to talk to you today. And, and I'm inter- I think one of the questions I'd really love your views on is at the grassroots level, what kinds of environmental advocates have arisen in Iraq? What kinds of issues let people come together? How do you create, how do you nurture environmental activism at the local level? And you talked about the importance of people seeing self-interest at the heart, and they don't see it in a sort of Western conventional way. They see it in a a pure self-interested way. So what are your experiences there that should inform work we're doing more broadly about advancing sustainability in the region? See, Iraq until recently, until 2003, was a top-down nation, and that administrative structure still remains. So for me to be effective, I need to work effectively with the government. I also need to work effectively with the, with the stakeholders. I want more people dependent on the marshes because these are extra voices that I can actually put on buses and take them to the Ministry of Water Resources in Baghdad and sit them in front of the minister and say, yo, Mr. Minister, please don't forget about us. And so that is the activity that I do in the north. My boys and girls are working on preserving an area for the Persian leopard. So <laughs> there I use a totally different la- language. I, I use the language of preserving nature for nature's sake. I preserve nature for creating economic activities around this buffer zone that they can benefit from. So for each area, there is a different language. Another language that I'm using right now with the Ministry of Water Resource, uh, Ministry of Environment is that the decision makers of the Ministry of Environment are powerless. They have great, great laws on books. Perfect. If they were implemented, Iraq would be an an eco-heaven. But unfortunately, they have no power to implement the regulations. So what I'm working right now is changing Nature Iraq's website to advocate, to ask people to give me, send me pictures of polluted area where the sewage is being dumped into the rivers. I want pictures of that. And I will have people extracting the GPS coordinate of these pictures, putting them up, not to create pressure on the Ministry of Environment, but rather to help the Ministry of Environment pressure those polluters, be they industry or government or hospitals or municipalities, whatever the case may be. All right. So here I have found a niche of trying to work in between the, the, the government because the, st- the system is still, namely we're democratic, namely we have decentralization, but effectively we're still a centralized, highly centralized state with the, almost everybody working for the government. So it requires a little bit, a little bit of, of a change of mind frame from the Western type advocacy for the environment, demonstrations, pressuring your representative and all of that to a hybrid between hybrid that kind of uses Western knowledge, grassroots activities combined with talking logically to administrative decision makers. It's it's something that I was not trained for, John. I mean, they teach us stress and strain. (laughs) It's something that you have to learn on the go. But I'll tell you something, participating in planning commission meetings in the United States did 
train me to think on my feet <laughs> and how to deal with people, how to approach issues from the perspective of whoever is objecting. What's your interest? As you mentioned, I don't tell people don't fish. Go ahead. Gonna fish. I'll tell you something about the fact that you're affecting the future, but I have faith in nature that she will heal and she will recover and she has an incredible capacity to self-correct. What I need right now is stakeholders that help me make the case. If you were to teach environmental education in Iraq, how would you approach it? If you, if you had young people and you were able to form how they thought about environment issues, what would the curriculum look like? I will talk about Iraq before oil. I will tell them about the history of trade. I will tell them about the history of agriculture and how it was invented. I will teach them about the natural way of irrigation in the north where the water is a lot lower than the, than the land versus the south where the land is lower than the rivers. I will teach them the value of how the original Iraqis adapted to their ecological conditions, to their environmental conditions, to create the breadbasket for the region. There, I will give them the respect that I have gained to the natural system. I came thinking that I have all the knowledge of the West, all the engineering. I came from a generation of dams are good. I have learned humbly that while dams have positive effects, they do have negative effects too. So let's learn from nature what works. I will approach it that way. That, that I think is probably the best way to approach them because it will give them pride in their heritage, first of all. Pride in the Babylonian, in the Sumerian, in the Assyrian heritage of Iraq. It will teach them the respect for nature that I have gained and that, in fact, emulating nature is the best way to make a living. Most importantly, impact on them that oil has been a curse, that oil has made their land the target of many an adventurer. And I will bring in Saddam's history and I'll bring in Qasim's history and all the generals that have basically risked their lives to take possession of this gold mine of oil and, and tell them what have you benefited from them? What have you seen of this oil? You have seen nothing. But what you have seen is destruction of your land because of that dependency on oil. Oil is going out. It's the fuel of the past. You have in your possession the fuel of the future, namely our sun. We have photovoltaic cells that can be installed in Iraq for the same cost as they are installed in Germany. In Germany, they will produce 120 days a year. A, a year. In Iraq, they will produce for 330 days. So even if you lose 50% of that electricity to transportation, you're still ahead. You have a land that you can open to investors and create forests, not farms, forests of photovoltaic cells. And under these photovoltaic cells, by the way, you can use clean water to grow crops that you can feed this entire region with. So I will basically, then the course would be how original Iraqis embraced nature, lived from nature, and how we can learn from our history to live into the future. So interesting, it's not biology, it's not chemistry. The way you would teach environmentalism in Iraq is through history. And as a trained historian, I'm especially interested in that. 
Uh, Azam Alwash. Maybe we can thank, write the curriculum together. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Azam Alwash, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to reach your audience. Next up, John, Natasha, and I discuss the relationship between climate change, governance, and trust. Azem talked about how original fish and other wildlife haven't yet returned to the marshes. What are some of the other consequences that he didn't talk about that we've seen of environmental pollution and mismanagement of natural resources? We've seen it in a number of ways. You've seen pasture land lie fallow because it becomes salinated, because it, it doesn't have nutrients, because it's been overworked. You've seen former farmland go dry. You've seen people losing grazing areas for flocks. You've seen all kinds of things all throughout the Middle East that's not limited to water, and it's not limited at all to Iraq. Yeah, actually, saltwater intrusion has destroyed or partially destroyed 90% of Basra's farmland. But it, it also looks like, you know, a fisherman guiding his boat through waterways where the fish are already belly up. And it also looks like tens of thousands of people running to hospitals because of intestinal diseases and rashes from polluted water. I mean, I want to emphasize that this isn't just a Middle East problem or an Iraqi problem. My father worked on the estuary here, the Chesapeake, the largest in the United States and the third largest in the world for his entire professional career. And billions of dollars were lost here in the fishing and crabbing industry in Virginia and Maryland alone. Jobs related to these industries dropped by nearly a half in less than a decade. So, I mean, some of the issues that Iraq is is suffering from are issues that we're dealing with right here at home. The project that Azam Alwash has been working on is you really had complete habitat destruction. I mean, almost like the destruction of the Amazon. You had an area that over millennia had developed a certain ecology and then was purposefully destroyed in a series of years by Saddam Hussein. Bringing that back is a process, and it's a process that he's been involved in. It won't go back to exactly as it was, just as reforestation doesn't bring back virgin forests in the United States. But it's the beginning of returning a whole ecosystem that was purposefully destroyed by a government for economic and political reasons. And I mean, I should mention that these, Azem Alwesh, he, he spoke about this a bit, but I mean, wetlands are these incredible ecosystems which filter toxic material naturally to the point where in some places in Lebanon and Jordan and other countries, they actually use constructed wetlands to filter wastewater, but it can only withstand so much. So if there's, you know, all of this sewage and industrial and agricultural pollution going into these waterways it's going to have an effect on the local ecosystem and therefore people's lives and, and livelihoods. So what do those effects mean for governance and a government's ability to provide services or provide other things that are essential for a day-to-day -day life? Well, I mean, in terms of governance, the Iraqi government has faced quite a bit of, of obstacles. You've seen protests in Basra due to, in part, water quality issues and unemployment issues. You also saw this on the other side in Iran, in the predominantly Arab city of Khuramshar, for pretty much the same reasons. At least in Iraq, the demand for, for change led to more reporting and monitoring and regulations. But in terms of action to really deal with 
what the reporting says or the violations that are encountered, we, we haven't seen very much. That's the hard part. That's the expensive part. And that's the part that sometimes I think creates powerful enemies. And I think that is the key part that we need to talk about. And it's, it's what is the government's role in regulating this and providing alternatives to people, particularly if you're looking at a place like Southern Iraq and you start seeing people's realities and their expectations really diverge. I mean, the majority of oil revenues come from Southern Iraq. So when people don't see the benefits of that in their day-to-day lives, that's going to create a lot of resentment and anger. How do service provision and climate change relate to each other? Is this a unidirectional problem or one that is more cyclical and more of a waterfall? There are a lot of services that governments provide in terms of water and sanitation, other things which are, of course, connected to issues of, of water availability and climate. There's a way in which the tasks on governments become harder. For instance, if, if you can't get water, then you have to have water piped in, and there's a responsibility for the government to pump the water in. As you know, we're working on a project that looks at service provision in the Middle East and thinking about are, are there ways to do this in, in smaller scales, more locally, that create virtuous circles that are, are constructive. But it it seems to me that the sophistication, the complication of the things that governments are trying to do is increasing. The importance of what they're trying to do is increasing. Populations are getting more urban, so it's more complicated to do. And governments find themselves partly for population reasons, partly for climate reasons and environmental reasons, find themselves more accountable with harder jobs and less leeway to screw up. And that raises the stakes for government success. Yeah, I mean, climate change is is clearly an existential issue for all of us because of its multiplier effects. But governments aren't really off the hook, neither are all of us off the hook when it comes to things like service provision and the things that we could be doing or governments can be doing on a day-to-day basis to conserve what little water is left to manage wastewater or waste in general better. When you look at a place like Iran, for example, or Tehran specifically, you see a city that's sinking, I mean, dramatically sinking year to year. Now, is that from climate change? Possibly some of it's resulting from climate change, but a lot of it's due to unsustainable water usage from the agricultural industry for the most part. I mean, right now you see craters as deep as 60 meters in some parts of Iran because of these sinkholes created from unsustainable pumping of, of groundwater aquifers. So climate change is, is an exacerbator, certainly, and it's definitely a motivator for governments to not screw around and to be more resilient when it comes to, to service provision more generally. How does everything you just described, Natasha, affect people's ability to trust in governments and institutions and each other? I mean, I think globally, climate change is going to disproportionately affect the poor and and poor countries more. And how governments adapt or fail to adapt to these effects is, is it's going to be a major issue in the years to come. And also how countries that industrialized earlier take responsibility for and help these countries to manage development in a sustainable way will be important for global trust. 
I mean, at the more regional level, what worries me is that, at least in the Middle East context, is that even in stable societies, it's really difficult to build the trust and incentive structures needed between stakeholders to make the the sort of the policy and infrastructure adaptations necessary to confront climate change and, and other challenges. So what do you do in today's Middle East where you have mostly conflict-affected or post-conflict countries that are quite literally or figuratively putting out fires constantly? How do you get them to prioritize these issues? And that's difficult. That means speaking on the local level to people that are affected day-to-day by these issues and motivating them and using them as soldiers for the cause, essentially. So on the reverse of that, that how do you build trust back up with people and with build back tr- up trust in governments and institutions when people are still feeling those effects? Yeah, I think what we've seen in, in a lot of the research we've done is that it's a combination of people feeling involved and engaged, like they have some control over their fate. And then people also feeling like things are getting better and things are getting better because they are doing things in partnership with others. So you go from having a vicious circle to a virtuous circle. It's not easy to do. I think there, in, in a lot of countries in the Middle East, certainly there's a concept that all the wisdoms in the capital cities with all the people with lots and lots of, of uh, fancy educational degrees and that you have to bring wisdom to the field and then they'll screw it up when they implement it, but at least it won't be a total disaster. You have to find ways to change that relationship, to have more of a meeting of minds, and ultimately to empower people on the periphery to both give them things that they can can manage and control and to make them feel vested in the kinds of positive outcomes that both serve their direct interests and serve the broader interests of the country. Technology makes that easier in many ways. We've seen lots of, of places where really technology that wasn't available 10 years ago can help lead you toward what actually are lower tech solutions in some situations, ones that require fewer ongoing inputs and less complicated management. But you have to have a sense of what you're trying to do. And there's a way in which this, I mean, almost a a colonial attitude, not between the United States and developing countries, but between the capital cities and developing countries and their own peripheries that you have to address. And this has been going on in many ways I mean, not only for the last 100 years, for a really long time. And arguably, there are people in the United States who argue it's going on in the United States now with people in Washington looking down on the rest of the country. This is a broader problem, but you have to address it, I think, in the United States. I think you have to address it in the Middle East as well. Yeah, I mean, I think people have to see change in their everyday lives, as we mentioned, in order to build back that trust. The director of the Latani River Authority So this is a basin that is suffering from terrible pollution, but he started holding people accountable, holding industry accountable, taking them to court, and even, I'm talking about the big fish and people with connections, and that started beginning to build trust amongst the people, and he's sort of seen as a bit of a hero now. But that's because they can see and smell, and in the case of the Latani River, they often eat some of the pollution problems every day. So... I think also at the grassroots level, there needs to be the use of sort of tech solutions like Google Earth to identify violations. 
but you also need to motivate sort of civil society or people to to fight for the change that they seek. Actually, in in the United States, it was Earth Day 1970 when 20 million people turned out protesting what they saw as excessive pollution in their day-to-day lives. And it led to the EPA, the Clean Water Act, and it had heavy bipartisan support. That also needs to happen. And there needs to be sort of a demand for change. And then we need to see that change in order for that trust to rebuild. Thank you both for joining me for this week's episode of Babel. Tune in next week for an episode on homegrown produce in Iraq. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.